What is godliness? What does it mean to be godly or godlike? Does it mean that you're perfect, that you're holy, that you're without mistake, that you never sin? Do we believe that Christians attain some sort of perfectionism here on earth? We often use words like godliness or holiness or righteousness, and we often use them interchangeably with one another. But godliness, as we'll see this morning, is a particular, um, not so much attribute, uh, behavior, but rather one's perspective of life. It is rather the outflow or overflow of one's affection. One is displayed as godly, not because he follows rules and regulations, because he obeys God, but rather one is godly because he has a sense of wonder and worship of God that demonstrates itself in his devotion to God. You see, one could follow all the rules, do all the right things, and not be godly. A godly character, as we'll see this morning in this particular passage, and what Paul is pushing forward, is not merely obedience for obedience' sake. That is, a perspective that I obey God so that He will love me. Rather, it is that God loves me and therefore I obey Him. It is an out of devotion and out of worship of Him that we are godly. In other words, one could say that godliness is literally a fear or reverence of the one true and living God that affects every aspect of our lives. And so Paul has just spent some time here warning young Timothy to avoid false teachers and particularly giving into the false teaching of asceticism. At last week, we considered together this false teaching that, that Paul is preaching against of ascetic thinking. That is, one could please God through sacrifice. That if I just give up a bunch of things in life, then somehow God will be impressed and he will love me. It was a false gospel that was being preached, a salvation by works and not a salvation of, of grace through Christ. But in all the sacrifice and di discipline, we think about Paul's exhortation to say, hey, we shouldn't be given to those things. We, we, we shouldn't be given to ascetic thinking. Does that mean that all forms of discipline are wrong? That all forms of sacrifice are out of place? Not at all. As we'll see this morning in this particular passage, that Paul contrasts the sort of false teaching of asceticism with the true teaching of spiritual discipline. But as Christians, we ought to be disciplined in our spiritual lives. We ought, to use the language that Paul uses, train ourselves for godliness. One who sacrifices to earn God's favor, asceticism, versus one who's, who, who loves God and whose God, who's love, God's love for them, rather, is put to action through devotion and service. So in your mind, you want to think this morning about these contrasting ideas about personal devotion to God and that false doctrine of asceticism and the tension that we live in. So I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you've not done so already, we're going to consider verses 6 through 10 this morning in our continual study through this letter. 
by God's grace, we'll wrap this up in, uh, say, February or so. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, what is Paul's point in this particular paragraph? We could summarize it in this way, that the goal of the Christian life is godliness. That the goal of the Christian life ought to be godliness, and therefore, as a result, the goal of every gospel ministry should be equipping Christians to be godlier through the gospel of the living God. Let's say it another way. Only the gospel produces godliness. Therefore, faithful teaching and godly living are marks of good ministers of Christ. Remember, Paul is writing to a pastor. This is a pastoral letter. But as I argued weeks ago, this isn't a private letter. This isn't a private correspondence. This was uh, shared with the congregation there in Ephesus. And so uh, the church was to know what their ministry was to be committed to. You know, there's a lot of arguments today about what churches should be involved in, what kind of ministries churches should have. And Paul here in this passage says the first really goal of any good ministry ought to be to create godly people, to make godly people. To make disciples of Jesus is to make godly folks. And so this morning, I want us to exhort ourselves and to consider how we are to train ourselves in godliness. And we see here three marks of good ministry. This passage outlined into three points. Uh, what makes a good ministry? If we were to evaluate the ministry of Catonsville Baptist Church, what would we say is good? What are the things that make ministry good? Number one, we'll see good teaching. Good teaching. Now, that doesn't mean that good oration. It doesn't mean, you know, give, you know, great preaching, but rather good, faithful teaching. Secondly, we'll see godly training. What makes a good ministry is godly training. There needs to be some godly exercise programs going on in the life of that church in order for it to be a good ministry. And thirdly, we'll see it needs to have a gospel goal. In order for it to be a good ministry, in order to be a good, healthy church, it needs to have the gospel and particularly the global spread of the gospel. It needs to have the gospel as the goal. So let's look at each of these points. First, in verse 6, a good ministry needs to have good teaching. It needs to have good teaching. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Now, twice in this section, he's going to emphasize this point. First, look at verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the, the brothers and sisters. And then look down at verse 11. He says, command and teach these things. 
In other words, Paul is telling young Timothy that what you need to where you need to focus in ministry is on teaching. There's a lot of aspects to pastoral ministry, but what Timothy was to give himself to was the preaching and teaching of God's word. That wasn't to mean that Timothy was to just climb some ivory tower and separate himself from the sheep. No, rather, he was to give adequate time to preach and to teach good messages. In this way, Paul says, he would be a good servant. He says, put these things before. It's the idea of, of offering it out. Like a meal we, that is set before you each week. Uh, the pastors of this church seek to put before you or set before you a delicate meal in which you can feast upon the delicacies of Christ. Oh, we prepare a meal. Your Sunday school teachers prepare a meal in which we are seeking to feed you. And so Paul tells him here that you ought to put these things, you ought to teach these things, you ought to speak the truth to the congregation. Where the false teachers were seeking to spread lies and deceit and silly myths, as he describes in verse 7. Uh, these faithful teachers were to teach good and right doctrine. They were to speak the truth rather than error. Similarly, Paul would exhort Timothy in chapter 4, verse 2 of 2 Timothy, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, you see the emphasis here of pastoral ministry is on teaching. In fact, as we saw, one of the qualifications in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy that differentiates elders from deacons is what? The ability to teach. One isn't a pastor if no one's listening. It's only the affirmation that one is apt to teach and able to teach. This emphasis on sound teaching. So what you ought as a member of this congregation to measure the faithfulness of the preaching ministry is are the preachers speaking the truth to us? And if they're not, then we ought to deal with it. You see, it's not that, wow, you know, uh, an Apollos Paul situation, you know, man, that dude's a real gifted preacher. Eh, you know, he needs some work. Not at all. It's not about the skill level of the preacher. It's about the content of what is being preached. Uh, what is he saying to you and is it faithful? You ought to evaluate everything that Pastor Rod and I say and evaluate it in this way. To say, are they preaching the word or are they preaching just their own imagination? We ought to evaluate based on this truth. Notice that Paul goes on that good teaching has a good foundation. Being trained in the words of faith, verse 6, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul here emphasizes that young Timothy was trained in the words of faith. Uh, this means that, that gospel ministry isn't done in a vacuum. It is done in a community. And we learn through 2 Timothy that Paul will make reference to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to what he says about young Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
See, it was, it was young Timothy's mother and grandmother who had trained him in the words of faith, who had taught him. You, you know, young Timothy didn't go to seminary. His seminary was, was right there in his home. And he learned from his grandparents. He learned from his mother how to follow Jesus. He was trained in the words of faith and he followed good doctrine. Paul here emphasizes that that Timothy is to teach that which is right, which is healthy and true, not which is false. Again, he's contrasting Timothy with the false teachers and setting Timothy apart as the one whom the congregation should listen to over and against the false teachers. Similarly, I keep referencing 2 Timothy because much of what Paul lays down here, he will develop more fully a number of years later in 2 Timothy. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul will go on to say that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, Timothy was to remain committed to one thing, and that was the Scriptures. One of the ways that you can measure faithful gospel teaching is the commitment to the Scriptures. The commitment to expositional preaching and teaching. You know, we teach expositionally not only through the pulpit ministry, but through our discipleship ministry. We, we want to remain committed to taking the point of the passage and making it the point of our study or our sermon and applying it to our lives contemporarily today. That's what expositional preaching is. What we do, we're not up here just uh, randomly talking about things that, that seem interesting to us, you know. Um, Pastor Rod and I are sitting down and saying, hey, what kind of fun topics do we want to talk about in 2022? But rather, we're saying, what is God saying in his word? And, and, and let's just consider that. Let's not go beyond his word. Again, what we want to measure whether or not things are faithful is, is it good? Not is it good to our ear, not does it make us feel good, but that it is right and true and faithful. So often the things that God says in his word are true, but they're hard and they're difficult. We struggle with them, but we know they're good for us. They're right for us. And so if we want to have good servants or good ministers of Christ Jesus, we want those who are committed to good teaching. Friend, this morning as you think about this, are you committed to hearing good teaching? There's a lot of teaching out there. Years ago, it was just the radio or even like cassette tape ministries that pastors had to worry about. But now today, there is a plethora of teachers online through personal blogs or uh, through their own podcast or sermons that they've recorded and put on there. But friend, just because it has First Baptist in front of it doesn't mean that it's good teaching. All right. Are you inclined to hearing more bad teaching than good teaching? Look, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for Pastor Rod and me. We're not ashamed and we, we're not hurt that you would go and listen. There's a lot of better preachers than us, all right? We, we know that. We're not dumb, all right? Uh, all right? <laughs> but at least think about, maybe I should check in with, with my pastor 
and ask him, like, is this helpful for me to be listening to? And, and we'll give you honest assessment, all right? We will, we will, all right? We don't know everybody, but we know a lot of people. And it frightens me when I go on Facebook and I see church members, like, reposting false teachers. That scares me to death, all right? Do, are, are you more inclined to listen to good teaching or things that tickle your ears? Let us fight that temptation and commit ourselves to good teaching that is sound in doctrine and committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes a good ministry is good teaching. That's what we want to commit ourselves here. That's what we want to evaluate the faithfulness of ministry here is on good teaching. Secondly, verses 7 through 8, on godly training. What makes a good ministry is one that trains in godliness. Notice what he says. He goes on, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. In other words, he says, Timothy, listen to me. You need to avoid the junk food of false teaching. False teaching is junk food, brothers and sisters. It sounds good. It feels good. It makes us feel good and warm inside. Look, I, just this week, just because uh, uh, old Joel had been in the news, I, I just happened upon some Joel Osteen. Of course, uh, if any of y'all know me, I, I have this infatuation with that, with that gentleman. He's a very gifted uh, or, or, you know, teacher. Uh, not a good teacher, but, but very quite gifted. Um, and, and I just was reminded about how sweet uh, to, the, to the taste false teaching can be and how much it can make us feel warm and good and right. And you, and you can get sucked into it. And you're like, oh, that's good. I like that. Paul describes that as, as itching ears. Timothy, he says, avoid, have nothing to do, don't flirt with, look what he says, irreverent, silly myths. Now notice these two words he uses, irreverent. If godliness is reverence, if godliness is fear of God and reverential, then false teaching, ungodliness, is irreverence. In other words, Paul is saying that every false teaching is an attack upon the glory of God. It is an affront to God. It is as if you're spitting in God's face. It's irreverent. And you want to flirt with it? You want to play around with it? You want to toy with it? You want to think, oh, false teaching isn't that big of a deal. It's okay. Hey, we all go a little... Not at all. A little pick-me-up from Joel every week isn't so bad. I mean, it makes me feel good. I mean, you know, yeah, I should think about myself, have a little good self-esteem about me. Not at all. He says it's irreverent. And more than that, it is silly, he says. It's silly myths. Now, we learned back in chapter 1 that they were devoted. He says, do, do not devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God. He calls them silly myths. What it was is, and we don't know, have like a specific name to this false teaching, but, but, it, but it seems to be they took the Old Testament and began to just kind of play around with it and, and began to overlay it with their own mysticism and, and old wives' tales. And, and, and Paul says it's silly. It's kind of silly. Do, do you, see what, you see how foolish it is? Really? We, look, you can't say that, that when someone opens their Old Testament and begins to count the words on the page and, and, and try to interpret something to you because of the number of words on a line, that that's not silly, friends. 
but a whole host of people are taken in with that stuff. Or, or as I mentioned a number of weeks ago, if, if, any of, if any of the pastors ever came before you and began to say, oh, we've received a word from the Lord, that's the time to walk out of the room. That's silly, he says. Paul will say it this way, and I, I love this. In Colossians chapter 2, Verse 23, now in Colossians 2, Paul's dealing with asceticism in a fuller, more, more rounded out way uh, than he does here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but listen, or chapter 4, look at what he says in Colossians. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. They're powerless. Utterly powerless. See, Paul is arguing here. He's like, okay, you want to be godly, yes. And you're going the way of these false teachers. He's like, listen, they, you won't ever become godly. Asceticism does not lead to godliness. It is impossible. It doesn't have the power to do it. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to break down walls and chains in your soul. This is why he goes on to say, rather train yourself for godliness. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We ought to invest, we ought to avoid the junk food of false teaching and invest in the right training program that produces results. Look, it's that time of year, right? We were joking about it in Sunday school this morning. It's that time of year, all right? Planet Fitness is going to be running a sale, friend. If you want to join a gym, now's the time, right? Everybody's going to be wanting to lose weight. And we know that in order to really lose weight, you need a personal trainer. You can't do it alone. You don't have enough self-will. I don't have enough self-will. I've confessed often. You open Oreos, I'll eat the whole box. <laughs> I can't have just one. I have zero self-control. I need a trainer. We need accountability. We need the right training program. And Paul says here in verse 8, if you want to be godly, well, then you need to be on the right training program. You need to train yourself for godliness. Now, the language that Paul here is where we get the word gymnasium from. Paul would, put have, would have understand, Timothy would have understand the, the, the games there in, in Greco-Roman world, and he would understand what it was like to wrestle and to fight and to train and the work and the sweat and the anguish that goes into that. If you've ever tried to train for anything, whether it be to run 100 feet or, or to run a whole mile, it requires great discipline. It's not easy. I guarantee you right now that no one in this room that doesn't, I mean, you could do it, probably hurt yourself. Right? If you didn't train to run a mile, we'd hurt ourselves. We'd fall over. Some of us can't even walk down the road without falling over. Um, it's me. Uh, but, but really, we need to train. And so the idea here is that godliness is something that we've got to work at. It doesn't come natural. Do you understand that you and I, though we've been made new and we've been born again, that we wrestle against flesh and blood? We wrestle against temptation and we fight and therefore we have to invest in this. This is hard. This is going to be work. It is not easy to become godly and Christ-like. But we have to work at it. 
Paul will say similarly in Colossians chapter 1, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Christianity is hard work. Godliness is hard work. It requires sweat, blood, and a lot of tears. It's a, it's a lifetime pursuit. But it comes with a great gain. In any good workout program, there are benchmarks in order to motivate the one being trained. And here, Paul sets some benchmarks in order to produce motivation in the life of those training to be godly. Look at what he says. He says, now, bodily training is of some value, right? It's, there's some value to it, he says. But godliness is of value in every way. Look at the promise. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, godliness produces fruit today and eternally. That when you invest in training in godliness, you are investing not only in today, but in your future. You want to see results? Back to fitness. In fitness programs, uh, uh, trainers will often try to create the training program in a way in order to, to create immediate, some immediate results, some immediate effect. All right. Some popular diets today uh, that you'll see is like keto. Keto diets are popular because they have immediate, uh, immediate effect. One, you get really, really cranky really, really fast because you've had no sugar. Uh, right, because we're all addicted to sugar, and you don't have sugar, and you, you're a little grumpy. Um, but secondly, you begin to lose water weight, and you go, oh, wow, I lost some weight, right? Um, so it creates immediate effect. And what Paul here does in this, he says, listen, if you will train yourself for godliness, it holds out the promise for the present life. It has an effect on present day life. It begins to transform you right here and right now. But also, he says, it is for the life to come. In other words, what you do today actually matters for eternity. Like, I, I tell you, we're, we're more Darwinian in our thinking as Western Christians than we realize. We have this thing about the afterlife and, you know, it's going to be some different. Now, you understand that the Christian worldview of regeneration is that you have been born again. The new has already come. You've already begun eternal life. You, you shall never die. You will live forever. That means what you do today will carry over into eternity. And so you want to invest? You want to invest somewhere? When you pursue godliness now, you're actually building up for you your future. In other words, you don't want to be playing catch-up, do you? You, want to, you don't want to be learning how to run a mile when you get to heaven. You won't have already accomplished the mile and, and maybe the, the, uh, the marathon. Well, you want to accomplish these things now. Work on these things now. That's what you'll be doing in eternity. What a promise he holds out to us. That if we pursue godliness, we will have a great reward. As the Proverbs remind us, there is a reward for humility and fear of reward in riches and honor and life. What makes a good ministry? A, a good ministry is one that's committed to good teaching and godly training. 
We want to give ourselves to regularly training. We want to exhort. Look, we want to train together, not apart. The best training in all the world will fail if you don't have accountability. We need accountability. We need each other. We need to see discipleship and following Jesus about helping one another do it. Titus 2 paints the picture of older women training up younger women and older men training up younger men. Paul will say here, right here, in chapter 5, in verse 1, he says, Hey, look, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. There's a family. We need each other in this family, and we need to treat each other like a family and help one another invest in godliness. What makes this good ministry is one that is godly in training and good in teaching, and finally, here in verses 9 and 10, that has a gospel goal. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Throughout this book, he uses this repeated phrase, a trustworthy saying. This is the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And every time he does, he has gospel implications in mind. So the very first usage of it was in chapter 1 and verse 15. He says the tr- saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And then again in chapter 3 and verse 1 he says this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he aspires to noble task. He said, well, how do those two relate? Because as he goes on to argue, he goes on to sh- demonstrate the correlation between godly teaching and gospel impact. That we need godly leaders in order to make a gospel impact. And then here, in this particular passage, the context is of, again, this global impact. For this end, he says. In other words, this telos, this goal. What's our goal? Our goal is the gospel. To this end, we toil and strive because, look there at verse 10, because why? We have our hope set on the living God. The motivation to pursue godliness is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To say it this way, if you believe in the gospel, then there will be godliness produced. The gospel produces godliness. That's what it does. And so you can be assured that you will succeed in your spiritual workout if you have truly believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful thing. If you were to to embark upon a workout program, there there is no guarantee that you will succeed in losing weight or becoming more fit or being able to run a marathon or whatever it is. But not with godly training. With godly training, there is a guarantee. He says that because of this, because we to this end we toil and strive, we work really, really hard, we, we, we exercise spiritually because of the gospel. Because we've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people. See, the gospel is the motivation which gets us up every morning to pursue it because it's guaranteed. The results are guaranteed. The gospel is not like those infomercials you see on TV that guarantee results but never deliver. 
the gospel always delivers. Paul will say it this way in 1 Corinthians, that we are being transformed in, by one degree, just one little degree to the next, one little notch. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. Guarantee you, brothers and sisters, he whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he sanctified and will glorify. It is guaranteed. You're on a workout program which you can't give up on. Which you can't quit. It is guaranteed. And so this is the motivation to continue. It is hard work, yes. It is, it, it is difficult to to, to become more and more godly and, and to more, more and more Christ-like. But we do it. We strain. We read our Bibles, though we don't understand. We pray, though our mind wanders. We seek to memorize God's Word, yet our, our, our brains feel like they're on fire. We give sacrificially, though we really wanted to spend it on ourselves. Rather, we gave it away for God's glory. We stay up long hours t- caring for our children seeking to lead them and to help them follow Jesus. We, we, we spend hours over meals devoting our lives to one another, sharing the gospel, helping one another follow Jesus, all because it's worth it, all because we know the results are guaranteed and we will become more and more godly. And finally, we have this gospel goal because it is the goal of God to save the world. Look at how he describes God in this passage. Number one, he's the living God. He's no dead God. He's a living God. This is to distinguish between the physical and the spiritual, which was the temptation perhaps going on here in Ephesus. This over-realized eschatology. This over-realized emphasis on the spiritual. No, he's a living God. He's, he's, He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He's no dead God. And notice he goes on, who is the Savior of all people. Now, I've dealt with this at length. I'll deal with it here very quickly. All doesn't mean every. It means all without distinction. Clearly, other passages of Scripture do that that, that would contradict any form of universalism. Paul is not teaching universalism that God will save all people, that everybody in the end will be saved. We reject such a view. One must have, as you'll see, saving faith. Look what he says. Especially, or particularly, those who believe. The offer of salvation is universal to all people without distinction. We, we don't pick and choose. It's not just for Western folks or Eastern folks, uh, white folks or black folks. It's not for rich or poor. It's for all people without distinction. No distinction. We spread the seed, we cast it far and wide, and God gives the growth. That's it. It's for all people. But notice here, it's especially for those who believe. And so Paul here is reminding us of the gospel. He's he's saying, listen, God is about saving sinners for his glory and about saving all people, especially those who believe. In other words, you, friend, you, brother and sister, who have put your trust... He is saving you. 
A good ministry then has this focus on global missions. In other words, it aligns itself with what God is doing in the world. What is God doing in the world? Is he just helping people need, that need food and clothes? No, God is about saving sinners for his glory. Therefore, we ought to be about those things. Evangelism ought to be a focus of our ministry together. We ought to focus on sharing the gospel with those around us. What a shame it is that so many of us go daily without telling someone about Jesus. And that only demonstrates one sad truth. That we don't care that people go to hell. Because we ourselves are going to heaven. We're safe. While those around us are perishing. Friend, our focus ought to be in evangelism and sharing this great news with those. We ought to develop relationships with people in order that we might share the gospel with them. Look, you might have some really annoying neighbors, but that's okay. You can get to know them and befriend them so that you can tell them about the wonderful Savior in which you now serve. Do you see the correlation between godliness, this fear of God, and evangelism? The call for others to fear God as well. In other words, as John Piper often say, will often say, that, that missions exist because worship does not. In other words, because there's a lack of worship, uh, that's why we have, we're on missions. We, we evangelize in order to invite others to worship the one true and living God that we worship. And so we want to have a focus, not on merely sending money globally, but rather to sending people globally. Taking the gospel to the nation ought to be a primary aim to see the unreached peoples of this world come to know Jesus. And so we see the goal of the Christian life is godliness. And therefore the goal of every gospel ministry should be to equip Christians to be godlier through the gospel. It is the gospel that is the means of change in our lives. Not by following a bunch of rules and ascetic teachings, but rather committing ourselves to the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. That only the gospel produces godliness in our lives. Therefore, our ministry must be oriented around the gospel. We ought to measure our success, not based on how many baptisms or, 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 or how many numbers we have or how fat our bank account is, but rather, is there good teaching going on in that place? Are they training those dear saints to follow Jesus? Do they have a training program? Or are they simply just sitting back eating McDonald's every week? A bunch of junk food, spiritually. And finally, do they have the gospel as their goal in life and ministry? This is what it means to follow Christ, brothers and sisters. And this is the metric by which we ought to measure our ministry here. For God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would speak and teach and help us to grow in our godliness. Train us, Lord, I pray. Help us in our training that we would not grow weary in doing good, but Lord, that we would pursue and, and endure the, the, the pain and the leg cramps and the, and the tired nights and all the, the things that go along with fighting the fight of faith. 
May we toil and strive with the, the hope that we have, uh, our hope that it is finished, that it is complete, that we are and will be glorified. It is for your glory and our eternal good we pray in Christ's name. Amen.